You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now step into the arena of ideas with your host, Coming to Dr. you from the Brian mystic, Shulker. majestic Appalachian Mountains, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. We want to thank you for joining us tonight uh, for our podcast. We have a double header on tap for you tonight. Uh, we have another edition of the Question Zone coming up a little later this evening. Uh, this it should air somewhere around 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and so we hope you join us for that. Uh, we have a wonderful podcast on tap. Uh, now we are joining Joined by the one and only Dr. Michelle Johnson, Executive Vice President of Bellator Christian Ministries, really good friend and a really good woman of God. Uh, she is up, and, and we won't hold the fact that she's a Minnesota Vikings fan against her. Uh, <laughs> but of course, I really can't anyhow because I find out to take an ancestry test, and I'm 15% Viking, so maybe I should be pulling for the Vikings anyhow. <laughs> But they need all the help that they can get. <laughs> but hey, at least we have our Liberty Flames. We're hoping, hoping, praying that they have a good, successful uh, conference championship tomorrow against New Mexico State. So we'll be pulling for our Flames. <laughs> but exactly, exactly. But we want to jump on in this because we want to give Michelle the full full scope of time tonight because we're talking about a very important issue. We're going through our series on bibliology, and believe it or not, we only have one month left, about three or four podcasts remaining uh, on the whole topic of bibliology. This, this series has just flown by. Uh, so let's jump into this. Tonight we're talking about the historicity of the Bible, and we want to take a look at uh, some of the reasons why we can believe uh, that the Bible is historical. Now, of course, archaeology its not going to prove necessarily that something happened, but it can give us good reasons uh, to, to believe whether or not something happened. And if, if the Bible is the Word of God, which we believe that it is, then, then there should be something that tells us, uh, that speaks to the truthful or, or validates the truths of Scripture. So, Michelle, let's jump into this. Both you and I have uh, our, our minors and our PhD. We're, we're both in church history, so uh, we're kindred spirits. History means a lot to both of us. So when we talk about history, uh, how do we determine if something is historically sound? Well, great question, Brian. Great question. Um, my mind tends to always go to archaeological finds. Um, very blessed to have sat in on several of Dr. Price's classes at Liberty and study under him. Um, the opportunity to delve into books and papers written by several other archaeologists um, and an opportunity to actually visit Israel on a couple of occasions. So the opportunity to, with my own eyes, see some of the things that we'll talk about tonight. Um, so when I considered this question, four things that immediately came to my mind. Um, one is archaeological finds. It's cool to have people dig up things that will affirm what Scripture says in its pages between Genesis and uh, throughout the New Testament. Um, but extra-biblical references. Um, we've talked a little bit about that this week. You referenced the fact that we're both church history minors, and we see historians at the time of the New Testament mentioning Jesus. We see all sorts of things in the church fathers, which follow very quickly in the first century, second century, etc. Um, there's references to people, events, places that will correlate with what pages of scripture say. Um, multiple attestations, a word that we heard quite a bit in Dr. Habermas's class, and to give our listeners a little bit of a definition as to what that is, it's when the same thing will appear in multiple independent sources. So it's not sources that necessarily copied each other, but it affirms the truth of what was either said or taught, that kind of thing because we find them in multiple independent sources. Um, oral traditions, which you spent <clears throat> quite a bit of time, <coughs> excuse me, quite a bit of time talking about a few podcasts ago. Um, so those, those come into play. It was interesting as I was considering this question, I took a look specifically at J. Warner Wallace and some of the things he looks at 
when he is trying to, he approaches his work as an investigator. That's his history for people who don't know him. And he has four principles when he looks at the historicity and the reliability of ancient information or scripture in this particular case. Um, he wants early dates. Early dates are critical for him. He looked at corroboration of the claims of the witnesses, um, both external, archaeology, the writers that we just talked about, internal cooperation. Do other parts of scripture, you know, affirm the same things in terms of geography, stuff like that. Um, does the story say the same? You know, as things get taught, as Paul spreads out, as Peter spreads out in Acts, does the story, does the creed, we'll talk a little bit about creeds later, do they stay the same? Is there consistency? And he looks at the bias of the witness and noted, he notes that in the course of the New Testament, he said it would be perfectly realistic to assume that disciples wanted Jesus to rise because there might have been some motivation on a real human level that they desired his success. But afterwards, we see conviction. So we switch from bias to conviction in our witness accounts. Um, and then we have Dr. Gary Habermas and his minimal facts argument. Um, I won't delineate all 12 of those, or he varies in what he gives in his list, depending on the book you're looking at, or the paper he wrote, or the student of his who is following up. Um, but he has a whole list of things to go through and criteria when he talks about the resurrection. So those are some of the things we would use. Absolutely. And all wonderful things at that. And as you said, we were really blessed uh, to, to be part of uh, some wonderful, wonderful classes with some wonderful scholars uh, on this issue. And so as we were talking about, um, you know, scripture in general and, um, you know, when we talk about bibliology, one of the questions that people would ask is, why should we believe what it was, what it says? Especially for those who may be doubters and skeptics. And so we're we, want, we were talking about this before the podcast and um, thinking of seven core events. Now there may be many other things that we can mention uh, as well, but these seven core events really stood out to us. Uh, we're talking about creation, the biblical flood. The existence of the patriarchs, uh, the Exodus, uh, King David. Uh, this is especially important when we talk about um, Israel as a nation, um, and then the existence of Jesus, the incarnation. We're getting ready to celebrate Christmas, and then of course the resurrection, which is really the linchpin, so to speak, of of, of Christianity. So let's let's take a look at, the, at first the whole aspect of creation. What factors prove the historicity of creation? And I realize in this instance, it's not, in this case, it's not, it wouldn't be exactly like it would be, say, to prove that Washington crossed uh, the Delaware or, or was the first president of the United States. This would be a lot different. Uh, but what are some reasons we can believe what the Bible says concerning creation? Yeah, and, and thanks for setting that up that way, Brian. Because um, you're right, as I took a look at the seven we're going to look at, the list grows longer as we get further along in the list. Um, there's obviously way more archaeological things and whatnot that we find. But there are some really important things that come up when we try to talk about the historical reliability of the creation account. Um, and for those unfamiliar with scripture, we find that in Genesis 1 and 2, the very first two chapters of scripture, and Dr. Price, in one of his books, alludes to the fact that the, there's an existence of creation accounts in other ancient societies and cultures. And I think his, his discussion on it is helpful because this could be something that actually could confuse someone, you know, who doesn't look into things, doesn't research things real well. Um, and that is the popular question that comes up. Well, maybe Moses or whoever wrote the Pentateuch took their stories and created his own. And Dr. Price actually points out that it appears that the Genesis creation account had made its way through cultures 
through society, as you had talked about with oral tradition. And then when we get to the Tower of Babel, which is a little later, a couple chapters later in Genesis, we see a disbursement of people, a scattering of people, and a, a change in language. People went away because they all spoke different languages, they didn't understand each other. And Dr. Price's conclusion is that it's at that point these other creation accounts began to blossom with differences from the original one because as those societies retold their story in their new language, they would pick up local facts and local things so the story would make sense. So that was an that was an interesting an interesting thing to read. The existence of creation accounts in other cultures actually serves to prove the history or to affirm the historicity of the creation account in Genesis. And that's something um, I had never really considered beforehand. That, that, that's something I really had re never no, really considered beforehand. <laughs> no, I thought that was an interesting thing. Um, because early on in my studies, actually, I read some of these. And to be honest, without much background in it, it was somewhat confusing. So it's it's helpful to have had him to explain that better. Um, the next thing I would point to is the New Testament proof that those that spoke of creation did so with the assumption and understanding that it was history. Um, we've got an article by Dave Miller called Genesis Myth or History, and he points to three things. He points to Jesus himself, who uses the Genesis creation account as the foundation for marriage. When he's asked about questions about marriage, questions about divorce, um, Jesus bases his answers on the truth and the historical reliability of the Genesis creation account. We have Paul. A um, couple of different things that Miller points out is Paul knew and referred to Adam as the first person mm. on earth and refers to Genesis 2-7 and, you know, there's all sorts of were there others and, you know, is it mankind, is it multiple people, things like that. Um, Adam was made from dust. Paul refers to that as though it was historical truth. And in Romans, you know, he points out it was through Adam, a real historical person, that sin entered the world. Um, so if, if it was a myth, if it wasn't historically reliable, those things wouldn't work very well. Um, it's also kind of cool to see that there's some linguistic proofs that Genesis is history. Um, figurative language is a part of it. Uh, he points out the fact that it's some translations, depending on which one you use, will refer to the deep. Well, the deep means sea, but that's not unusual. It doesn't make the creation account myth. We talk like that all the time. It's understood the deep would be the sea. Um, so all those things, he, he points to the fact that that stuff is easy to understand, especially at the time it was written, in the culture it was written. We've got our own idioms and things like that in our English language, but we say them and we get it and we know what everyone's talking about and go from there. So those are some, some points that would point to the historicity of the, the creation account. And that's such a cool, that's such a cool way of, of considering creation because normally, typically I think of, uh, of Aquinas's five ways in, in, in defending, you know, creationism. Of course, that maybe go a little more away from archeology span and history to more of the scientific areas. And, and philosophical areas, but it's interesting. I really also like the point that you made that if Jesus is who he said he was, which we're going to talk about the resurrection here in just a few moments, but if he really is who he said he was and the resurrection affirms that, then we can trust what he says about these other details, including creation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so, let Let's get a little controversial here. What about the flood? I know this is a, if creation wasn't controversial enough, what about the flood? What, what, what type of evidence do we have to prove the biblical story of the flood? Mm -hmm. What about the flood? Yeah, the, 
like growing up, I never really assumed that there would be so much controversy about the flood, but there <laughs> is. And you. I think there's controversy anytime someone and ultimately, obviously, the enemy wants to distort God's word and, and say it's untrue. And um, that's very true. But yeah, big things about the flood. And I think the biggest thing, at least that I came across and I've come across recently, is the distinction between a local flood and a global flood that mm -hmm. seems to be one of the big things and and to me it's like well if, if you're going to allow a local flood well <laughs> you know let's just go with the flood completely um <laughs> but it's interesting as you know answers in genesis obviously is a huge proponent for the early history genesis 1 through 11 um, they offer quite a bit of material done by scholars, both outside and within their organization. And, and they, they come out to say that, you know, what would you expect? What would you expect with a global flood? And the answer that Bodhi Hodge um, offers in an article he wrote is we expect to find lots of things, fossils buried in a water-based sediment in rock layers and like all over the place, you know, in the lowest valleys, on the tops of mountains and everywhere in between. And the research that they offer and the scholars that they've partnered with and people that they refer to have documented findings of these fossils, irregardless of altitude, essentially you know, right at sea level and all the way to tops of mountains where you wouldn't expect to find some of the fossil stuff that they find. So the fossils laid down in a watery-based sediment all over the earth seems to speak very favorably to a global flood. Um, the other thing that they point out is the evidence for a catastrophic event in the past. And those evidences include canyons, craters, um, coal beds, caves, um, and even in some instances, and I'm not a geologist, so some of this takes me way outside of my, my regular scope <laughs> of study, but large layers of strata of similar stuff, and sometimes they cover entire continents. Um, so things that would testify to the height of mountains and the depths of canyons, um, nothing short of a catastrophic event, um, really. So I thought that was fascinating. Um, one specific item that, that caught my attention is something called a polystrate fossil tree. And I hadn't heard of that before, but a geologist named Terry Mortensen who is a geologist that works with Answers in Genesis right now, talks about, and, and other, plenty of others have addressed this as well, they're fossil trees that, and I should have captured one of the pictures, you see the tree and it's essentially vertical, maybe slightly horizontal, but all the way up there's multiple different layers of strata that would have had to have been laid down very rapidly to capture the entire tree in it and as they've studied it they've also found those same layers very consistent layers without the trees wow. so the conclusion then is that it would be global and in more than just that localized area something happened um and it's it's the rapid depositing of the sediment that's really seems to be key in affirming the global flood and they find it with trees without trees you can't say it's just one location or something that happened there they're finding it all over so it's <laughs> it's pretty cool that that really caught my attention i thought that was neat you know while it's not associated with the flood per se you know the, the story a little later in genesis talking about the destruction of sodom and gomorrah um i've i've heard recently of, of some very compelling evidence that confirms that something along the lines of a giant meteor probably plowed into Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're finding evidence of things just being va vaporized, even turned to glass, because they were such high temperatures. 
And then if you follow the trajectory, according to some research I had heard, had heard as well, whatever it was that struck Sodom and Gomorrah apparently clipped a piece of the Alps off. So as it was coming down, it clipped a piece of the Alps mountain, the mountain range there, wow. clipped it off, and on the same trajectory as, as when it hit there. So just go coincides with with what you find in in the Book of Genesis. Isn't that incredible? That's just it's amazing. And you know, even with the flood, we also find like we did with creation. In within the Bible, we also see both Jesus and Peter referencing back to the truth and the scope of the flood that's recorded in Genesis. And uh, both of them, while they speak to the, the catastrophic event, they're also referencing the judgment of God. Mm. So they affirm, both Peter and, and Jesus affirm the truth of the global flood and ties it to similar to I was thinking of with your Sodom and Gomorrah um, reference and the reports that you've heard on that. And, you know, it's, it's consistent with what Genesis says. So, <laughs> And what was the name stuff. of the, what was the name of that tree again that you said that they found? It is called polystrate fossil trees. So P O L Y S T R A T E. Um, and a number of other people have have addressed them. Um, even scientists who seem pretty staunchly anti-biblical um, address it, but of course they don't. They've got other explanations for it other than a, a rapid laying down of the different layers around it and stuff. So <laughs> that that is cool. That is really cool. Isn't that neat? It's very neat. Like I said, I wish I should have gotten permission to copy one of the pictures that was in the book I looked at because it's it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So let's move on to the patriarchs. Do we have any? And, and here again is I remember I think it was Doctor Chet Roden who who said that uh, uh, I think this was in a podcast years ago. Is like the further back you go, the more difficult it is to find evidence to support you know certain people, certain groups. But 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 the interesting thing is that there are still some reasons to believe in some of these very ancient ev- ev- people and ancient events. So do we have any historical reasons for believing in the existence of the patriarchs? And here we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, and thanks for defining those because I think that's important. It's like, well, who are the patriarchs when we talk <laughs> about them? And they're really the people that occupy Genesis 12 through 50. Um, as you mentioned, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, some people include some other names in some of those lists. Um, and there is, I, I bumped into right away the same thing that Dr. Roden said, you know, it just, there just really isn't a lot we can put our fingers on. And yet there is, and I yeah. think there's a growing amount of things that we can put our fingers on. Um, we'll talk about David a little later and he was the same thing People like, there just isn't anything. Well, I started to worry about all the stuff I was finding on David. <laughs> um, but we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, EpicArchaeology.org, and I think you were the one that pointed me to them. Um, they've got some interesting articles that deal specifically about this. And, you know, it's really cool. Ted Wright, who posts quite a few of their articles, he looks at the historical evidences he looks at include people, cultures, empires, and kingdoms, from the time of Abram, Abraham, depending on when you're talking about him, and the archaeological finds, so inscriptions, things that will speak to the cultural practices, things that will identify somebody, um, those are the kinds of things he looks at. And one example he refers to is what's called the Hittite Legal Code. And there was a discovery made of about 10,000 clay tablets, the early part of the 20th century, and the part of it that includes this legal code provides insight into Abraham's purchase of the cave at Machpelah, oh, wow. which was the burial place for Sarah. He bought it to bury Sarah, and then also he was buried there, and Isaac, um, Leah, Rebecca, and Jacob are also there. Um, so that was cool. It doesn't necessarily affirm the specific Abraham bought it from. 
but the legal grounds, the cultural details of how he went about it, which once you're familiar with the story, it's kind of a, it got some interesting little things. There's shoes involved and stuff like, I mean, it's, it's got some interesting traditions. So to have that stuff affirmed by the legal code that was prevalent in the day, you know, is a pretty strong affirmation that the scripture wasn't making up the details it chose to include. So that was kind of cool. Um, and kind of piggybacking on that, the tomb of Abraham is a place you can visit in Israel. Really? Um, now, not being an archaeologist, not being an expert in those fields, I always preface everything I visited in Israel with, it appears to be, based on the information people are giving us. Um, but there is, it's in modern-day Hebron, and it's, it's actually, now, of course, it's covered by buildings and everything else, but there are those that have identified that area as the cave of Machpelah and the place where we have buried or where they had buried the patriarchs and their wives. So they're discovering things. It exists. Um, I've driven by it. I, I can't say, you know, I'm not an archaeologist. I haven't dug around in there. I didn't get inside to see it and things like that. But um, so the tomb of, tomb of Abraham is, is in theory a place you can, you can go visit. So, wow. Um, there's also something called the Nuzi tablets, and they were discovered the, in about 1925, um, and they show similar support when we talk about traditions and practices that the Bible records when it's talking about the patriarchs. And a couple of the things from the life of Abraham that come into play, um, and even Jacob a little bit, but in Genesis 15, Abraham tells Eleazar, his servant, that he's his heir. God has promised that he's going to make Abraham this father of a great nation. And Abraham's going, I'll see it because <laughs> we don't have any kids. I don't have an heir. So the tradition of making another person an heir when there's no biological offspring is included in these tablets. So it's not something that would have been foreign in that culture and that day. Um, even in Genesis 25, where we get Esau selling his birthright to Jacob, that's also a process that's delineated in these tablets as well. So not something Esau just made up because he was super hungry at the moment and desperate for something to eat. It actually was a response or a process by which um, things did happen in those days. And similarly, when we talk about Sarah and Rebecca both offering their husbands surrogate women to bear children on their behalf, Again, it's it's documented in these tablets as a common cultural practice. So, and just interesting. While it doesn't, the tablets don't point to Sarah and Abraham and Jacob and Esau. They support the cultural de details that Scripture includes, which is pretty cool. And you know that that's really compelling because if you have. I mean, and again, I know I realize that this isn't going to be the level and degree of what we have for the resurrection and other, you know, later events mm -hmm. of Scripture, but, but still, you have the tombs of people discovered, and even apparently well known in the area of Israel. You have cultural practices that match exactly what you find in the pages of Scripture. I mean, all of that. I mean, because a lot of these cultures would not have a lot of these cultural practices would not be known to us today if it weren't for like the newsy tablets and things of that nature. So it really speaks to, or really should I guess? Let me rephrase it. It really provides us good reasons for believing that this part of the scripture was true in what it was saying. Exactly, because my thought is. It included such detail. It could have just not, and then it would have been more easily just to say, well, you know, believe that. But it chooses to include things that could be disproven, I yeah. guess, is what's interesting to me. And God in his graciousness is allowing us to find things that say, nope, it affirms that that's the truth. You know, one last thing I came across with the patriarchs, and I had heard somebody mention this in a class. I think we talked about this earlier this week. It, 
it caught my ear. I was busy taking notes on something else. And someone said, well, what about the camels? I'm like, camels? Why are we talking about camels? The camel thing is a big deal when it comes to the patriarchs, apparently. It's the point that several people have used in saying, well, domesticated camels don't exist until well after Abraham. And scripture, Genesis 12, 24, 30, 31, 32, um, again, it's right that's writing these, this article. The Bible references camels in relation to the patriarchs, whether it's in how they move their stuff or, you know, what they had with them or something like that. And, you know, there was, there was an article that came out from actually a Tel Aviv University team in 2014 that said, domesticated camels weren't a thing until a time well after the patriarchs. So poking at a discrepancy included in scripture. While the points that Wright uses to counter argue this, this report that came out is one, he says, you know, it's always important to remember one discovery isn't the end of the story necessarily. Mm -hmm. And I think that's good for us to remember as we bump into anything. Um, you know, the you can see a big claim on, my husband and I were talking a little bit, it reminds me of the, the articles you'll see standing in the grocery store, you know, the <laughs> real Jesus this, or the real this, and most often it's intended to disprove something scripture says. Like an actual don't get too hyped or something on like some that. of those findings, because it's not always, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but Wright also says, you know, he points out the truth that the patriarchs were nomadic people. Mm -hmm. I mean, Abram was called to leave his home. He traveled a distance, ended up traveling later on in the history of the patriarchs. The peoples traveled down into Egypt. They didn't set up a city and establish a presence really with much opportunity to leave behind remnants. So it's interesting, the article that says camels are the thing that poke a hole in the story like you said, one, they were looking at one particular locale in the southern part of Israel. And the patriarchs just never there long enough to create enough of a footprint. Um, he also quotes Kenneth Kitchen, who is an Egyptologist, who says, you know, while the Bible mentions camels in relation to the patriarchs, we have to remember they weren't camel herders. They weren't camel traders. That wasn't their business, so it's not like they had a plethora of them. Yeah, You know, it might be similar to saying, well, I drive a Honda. That might come up in some conversation. You're not going to drive by my house and find a whole sales lot of Hondas here. <laughs> you know, so it was a good reminder. You know, it just, camels weren't their business. They happened to mention them. But I just thought the camel thing was kind of funny. And it seems like, I, and, I, and I may be wrong, I mean, just give this disclaimer, I may be remembering completely wrong, but it seems like I read something somewhere that that, I mean, that there's more than one version of camel, and they may have been even describing one particular type of camel, whereas the scripture may be talking about another version, whether it would be one with... Um, Whatever, I mean, I'm not a camel expert, don't know anything much about them, <laughs> except I did hear that they'll spit on you. I have heard that, mm -hmm. but but outside of that, uh, you know, but there may be more than one version of camel, so it may be that that version they're talking about wasn't there, whereas there may be other versions that were. And, and, and it's interesting because, you know, the patriarchs seemed like... Uh, was it Joe? Was he or so one of the patriarchs was from us and in different parts, and so they were more, really more up toward the Mesopotamian region, coming down toward Israel. So I wonder if that has any. I'm just thinking out loud. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that has anything to do with it, either. I, I really don't know, but it's possible. Yeah, they just moved around a lot, so yeah. you're not going to find a lot of remnants from them. They didn't build buildings, you know, as far as I understand. So. Yeah, that's true. So cool stuff. What about the Exodus? This is a big time event in the pages of Scripture. Do we have any good evidence or any good reasons for believing yeah. that the Exodus happened? We do, and we could spend like the next three hours talking about Exodus. So <laughs> I'm gonna, for the sake of time, I think I'll sort of skip through because we've got some big ones still coming up. Um, really, I think one thing that's super important is Exodus really piggybacks on the patriarchs. 
Because if the patriarchs don't exist, that's the family that went down. They followed Joseph during a time of famine, and he provided a space for his family to settle in Egypt. Mm. So it's really difficult to have the exodus if you don't have those people coming into Egypt to start with. Absolutely. So um, it's super cool to think about how those things are kind of related to each other. Um, again, Epic Archaeology writes some stuff. Um, like Ted's got an article with like the 10, not 10 most significant, but 10 significant archaeological discoveries, one of which are some inscriptions that were found in Egyptian Sinai. And they actually mention Moses, who is outside of our discussion on the patriarchs, but they, he meant, it mentions Moses, and it also mentions the Hebrews, which would affirm or help support the idea that they were even in the land of Egypt to start with. Hmm. And they have to be there in order to have an exodus. And, of course, the mention of Moses supports the person that led them on the exodus you know, out of out of Egypt and back to the Promised Land. Um, so that was that was kind of cool. More inscriptions, things that we're finding, people are writing. Um, often it's the other culture that's writing it. It's records of kings' conquests and kings' losses or wins or things like that. Um, there also is a really significant resource. You and I talked a little bit about this. Um, and rather than, I mean, I, he delineates his argument over the course of multiple pictures sometimes or films. Um, Tim Mahoney, Timothy Mahoney is with Patterns of Evidence. Mm -hmm. And he has a two-part, uh, he's got a one-part film on Exodus itself, a two-part film on the Red Sea Miracle, and one on the Moses Controversy. And those four films... Uh, I would throw my recommendation, not supported at all by that organization, but we've watched them and they were helpful. And one of the things in his Exodus 1 is a dating correction. And it seems like that's one of the biggest issues with the Exodus is where we date or who we put in charge, basically. Who's the Pharaoh at the time? Because that then will help us date things. And if we get the wrong Pharaoh some of the other stuff in scripture doesn't line up, that sort of thing. Um, and you had pointed me to Amenhotep II. Amenhotep, really yep. I'm bad at pronouncing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And now one thing I thought was interesting, and this is a caution, and it's a good caution to those of us who are studying both archaeology and scripture, um, a lot of times it's Ramses that's mentioned. And I have heard that myself. You know, it's Ramses is identified as the Pharaoh during the Exodus. And, you know, one thing that writes, excuse me, this wasn't right. This was from another article. It got questions.org. Ramses is something that was made very popular by Hollywood. Yeah, that's very true. The, Ten, the movie The Ten Commandments, the movie The Prince of Egypt, Exodus, God, and Kings all identify Ramses as the Pharaoh at the time. And it's interesting, there's a lot of reasons that this article gave. One, if the city of Ramses already existed, chances are it was more in honor of someone who had already lived. You know, there was all sorts of things that they offered. But if, if you get the right Pharaoh, then things start to fit in place. And it, it does affirm what scripture says. And and some of the things that they talk about with Amenhotep II being the right pharaoh, um, it's consistent with the fact that during his reign, there was an abrupt cessation of military activity, which makes complete sense if he lost his army mm -hmm. following the Israelites through the Red Sea. Um, and also there's records that indicate his successor, was not what they call a true heir to the throne. And that as well would speak to the truth of the 10th plague, which killed yeah. the first, which resulted in the death of the firstborn in everybody who didn't have their house marked the way God had indicated they should. 
So he would have lost his true heir in that tenth plague, which was interesting. So mm. lots, lots of stuff you could dig into with Exodus. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you know, in the Egyptian records, it shows that a, a large, if I'm remembering correctly, a, a large dip in the census uh, or in the population mm. at that time. I mean, it really, it just. If you have the right time frame, it really starts merging together quite well. So let's take a look at King David. Was King David a real historical person? This this is something that is uh, that gets some attention among skeptics and doubters. It does. It does. Um, and yeah, David is is another person that um, a lot would have said a while ago. Not much exists. We don't know about David. Um, and it's growing. It's growing where we can find evidence that does affirm what Scripture says about him. Um, David, uh, for those that are interested, you can really find quite a bit about him in First and Second Samuel, First Kings, and First Chronicles. Um, and of course, he's credited with writing a number of the Psalms that we've got in in the Old Testament. Um, a lot of what I came across and where we're finding evidence of David are in inscriptions in stones in writings that they're finding uh, there's one called the tell dan inscription and it's on something called the tell dan steel it's a it's a piece of stone with writing on it and there's a reference to the house of david and it turns out that it's actually a it's an extra biblical documentation of the presence or the existence of king david it's from a Arminian king who's to the who lived to the north of Israel, what's well, modern day Israel, and he conquered. He was recording his conquering of the house of Israel and the house of David. Mm. And there's other evidence that very frequently the house of David is what was referred to when it was referring to his his kingdom and his rule over the kingdom of Judah. Um, there's two other David. Um, inscriptions. There's one called the Mesha stone, and it actually was found in Jordan in 1868. So it predates the Tel Dan inscription. The Tel Dan one is kind of held right now as sort of the golden thing, um, but that wasn't found until 1993. The Mesha stone was found in 1868 in Jordan. It actually was translated in 1992. And Part of the problem is we're missing some letters or missing a letter. So that's why when they found the Tel Dan inscription, that helped them clarify what was missing from this one because of structure and all the things that people who translate those would look for in terms of consistency. Um, and it refers to, um, in it dwelt the house of David. So it was referring to an area um, again, it was a victory steal, so it had to do with military activity one way or the other. Um, and it's it's a king's record or a ruler's record of what went on um, at the time. There also is something called the Karnak inscription. Of course, that comes from Egypt, and it's part of the Karnak temple records, possibly actually dating to the time when David was was reigning in Israel, hmm. which is kind of cool. So... As they dig more into that, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with in terms of was that something really written down when David was actually there, not something recorded down the road after wow. something happened. Um, one last little thing that I thought was interesting was there was something called the Goliath of Gath, Astraka. And an Astraka is a pottery fragment that is found in excavations. And this actually has, it was found, it mentions the name or it may mentions. The article that I looked at said it may mentions. They hold things loosely until things are firm. The name of Goliath. But it was found on an overlook just above the Valley of Elah, which is where David and oh, Goliath wow. fought and David killed Goliath. So cool stuff. They're, <laughs> they're finding things about David. And as we as we put all of this together, we're really building a cumul a good cumulative case for the historicity of Scripture. Now let, let's let's look at two of of the big guns. 
when we talk about the history of Scripture. Uh, so what evidence do we have for the existence of Jesus of Nazareth? We're coming upon the Christmas season, which doesn't even... I can't even believe it's, it's Christmas time of 2023 <laughs> here now. Uh, so what evidence do we have that Jesus did exist? And, and, of course, we're talking here about the incarnation of Jesus. Of course, that goes hand in hand. We won't we won't deal so much with the virgin birth part, but more so with the existence of Jesus. Do we have good reasons for believing that Jesus did exist? We do. And this stuff, well, it's all cool. I, I should have been an archaeologist. Um <laughs> It's all cool stuff. There is something called the Galilee boat. And I think when we had talked earlier this week, I had told you a little bit about it. I had the great blessing of seeing this Galilee boat. We were staying at a, um, at a kibbutz. It's up in the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee. And this is in a, in a museum or in a, a place that's attached to it. They found in 1986 two fishermen from the area came across and it was buried in the mud. It is the remnants of a fishing boat from mm. the first century. And great painstaking to dig something that's wooden. It is wooden. And there's pieces of it missing. You can you can look it up on the internet and see what's still there. They've built a structure to support what's what's left. But you know, it's consistent with the gospel record on so many things. It it is wooden. It's the disciples are described as being fishermen in the gospels. Um, not all of them, but a good majority of them. The events that happened on the Sea of Galilee and involved the boats were, you know, there's a ton of them in there. We have Jesus in the boat and he calmed the sea when a storm brewed up and they were going. And when you see the size of the boat, of the Galilee boat, I can see why they weren't too excited if a storm <laughs> blew up in the area because it's not a really big boat. Um, Jesus walked on the water. That story involves the disciples being in the boat and Jesus coming out to them. Um, Peter and others were called to follow Jesus while they were working on their boats and their nets and talked about their fishing business with their fathers. Um, and Jesus often got into a boat on the Sea of Galilee to step away from the crowd, whether it was that the crowd was so big, he had to get back to address everybody, or he needed to change locations, or he was he was done teaching in that area and was going to travel for a time to be alone and things like that. Um, so boats play such a big role in Jesus' ministry. It's not his ministry. It's, it's not his message. But they play such a role, and to find a first century boat just helps affirm all those things um up in a similar part of the nation there's a synagogue at capernaum Mm. and it's it's ruins um they've they've set up some of the pillars and things like that um as you walk through it it's i've heard it been called the white synagogue because the stones are a white color um that dates to the fourth century so you walk through it as a tourist and you're like, oh, this is amazing. Jesus spent so much time in Capernaum. It was kind of his adopted home during his ministry. And then they tell you it's from the fourth century. And you're like, well, but then Jesus, that, that doesn't jive with, you know, the time that Jesus was here. However, it's built upon the ruins of another synagogue dated to the first century. And the argument is that Jesus may have preached there, referencing John six fifty nine, that says he was in the synagogue when he taught the things he had been teaching. Um, it's not terribly far in terms of logistics to where they believe Peter's house was. And we've got things in scripture that talk about Jesus going to Peter's house and healing his mother-in-law and things like that. Wasn't Peter's um, or Simon Peter's house octagonal? in shape it's kind of a bizarre shape yes now i will tell you too there is there is a church that in israel there's a church that's been built on top of everything that they've found um there is a church that is built that is ascent i would call it round it might be octagonal um and it's it's up on almost like stilts because you can see under to where they've excavated where they think Peter's house was and stuff. So 
quite possibly. And I don't know if the church was built to replicate that or not. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't remember specifically the shape of it, but it's just cool to see. I mean, he's right down the street from where the, the synagogue was. Which is cool. And I've heard it said that in, in what was supposedly Peter's room, that they found a, a cache of fishing hooks and other, other oh, type cool. of items in, in what they believe would have been his room. That would have been awesome. Yeah, that, <laughs> that I hadn't heard, but it's quite possible. Quite possible that, that would be the case. So we've got, you know, we've got things in northern part of Israel. We've got a couple things. Um, we've got two pools that affirm the stories and the locations of two of Jesus' miracles. Um, we have a pool of Siloam, and that one has made news quite a bit in the past year um, because they're beginning excavations on the entire complex. What I understand of it is there's negotiations with the person that owns the land that they really believe the pool and most of the complex is under, and somehow now it's been achieved that they can go ahead with that. Um, I've actually had the chance. What existed when I was there in 19 was just a few sets of steps and just maybe a flat part that you could envision would be part of the decking maybe that goes around. And actually, Dr. Purser, who's part of um, Bellator Christie, he we had the privilege of listening to him do a devotional about mm-hmm. Um, the man that was healed at, it was the blind man that Jesus healed at the pool of Siloam. So that one, I would encourage people to keep watching because at least the sketches of what they anticipate digging and excavating there is going to be amazing. I wow. mean, it's the whole pool, all the, yeah, it's, it's going to be cool stuff. So, um, Oh, where did I find some of that? Biblicalarchaeology.org, I guess, is the one article that I looked at. Lots of places have been covering it over the last year. And there's also the Pool of Bethsaida. Um, and that's the pool in John 5, 2, where Jesus came upon the lame man who Jesus said, would you like to be healed? And the man said, well, I would. But, you know, when the waters stir up, there's no one here to help me into it. And the Bible offers some really interesting details. And I think that's so on purpose because in God's grace, he's now allowed us to put some of these pieces together that go, "Mm -hmm, yep, this just affirms what my word says. (laughs) The Bible tells us that it had, it was by, it was in Jerusalem. It was by the sheep gate and it was surrounded by five roofed colonnades. Um, Some talk about porticos, but some sort of covered structure. And this pool was found in the late 19th century, and it took quite a while to identify it. According to the article, it was the biblical detail of the five covered colonnades that were the problem. Because as they talked this through, they really envisioned a five-sided pool to meet that specification. And here come to find, at least the report says, it's actually a rectangular pool, but there's a wall dividing the pool, which then would allow them to have five sides to the pool, which is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, it, just all this stuff is just so I can geek out on archaeology things pretty easily. In the great sovereignty of God, you have to think that he led some of these writers to add these details, knowing that later on we would be here in the 21st century discovering some of these things that just only affirm the, the, the validity of what we find in the pages of Scripture. It's amazing. Exactly. Isn't that the truth? And now you had, when we talked, you know, you had mentioned creeds, oral tradition, things like that. Um, was there any more you wanted to, I mean, there's lots more to add oh, to this. Oh, yeah. But. Well, real quickly, i just say, you know, for in, individuals who may be looking for information, uh, you know, concerning, you know, Jesus, his name, I mean, you, you consider the fact that we have uh, early documents. I mean, when you look at the Bible, don't look at it as 66 uh, don't look at it as one unified book, although we as Christians do and to find the themes theologically, but there's 66 individual books, and you have several, 27 in the New Testament, most of which, I believe about all of them do, mention the name of Jesus. That's important, all within the first century. And then even among that, you have uh, the creeds, that many of which date to within, I think, 
the going thought now is uh, the First Corinthians 15 creed probably dates to within months or, or at the very latest five years after after Jesus. And then um, and then of course you have the oral traditions and, and what I what I am really more and more becoming convinced of through my dissertation and further studies in oral traditions is that we have good reasons for believing that the traditions behind the four gospels are early eyewitness testimonies even if they didn't come from the writers themselves we know Luke was a historian even if all of that didn't come from his eyewitness testimony he's recording the testimonies from the communities of individuals who had first-hand encounters with Jesus so we have every reason for believing in the historicity of Jesus. Don't get me started, because I, because <laughs> I, like you said, I could definitely take several hours on this because because this is great, great stuff. <laughs> it's awesome. It's exciting, is what it really is. Um, as cool as all the stuff is, it's just it's so exciting what it does for the way we think about God's word and how it just affirms it. Absolutely. It doesn't need any proving, but it does affirm it. Absolutely. Well, we talk about the big gun and the historicity of Jesus. Let's take a look at the big canon, (laughs) which is the linchpin of of Christianity in many ways, the resurrection of Jesus. Do we have reasons to believe that the resurrection of Jesus was indeed a historical event? Uh, We do. We got lots of reasons. And thankfully, we have Dr. Gary Habermas, who has spent a lifetime an academic lifetime, developing what he calls his minimal facts. And his minimal facts argument are a a dozen, depending on what paper of his you're looking at. Sometimes I've seen five, sometimes I've seen seven. But they're the core things that he can gain a high percentage of agreement from scholars Christian scholars, secular scholars, just scholars. Um, So these are things the Bart Erdmans of the world would agree to when having a discussion about the historicity of the resurrection. Um, The list that I particularly took, or I have down here, I took from Dr. Benjamin Shaw, who was uh, officially a grad assistant for Dr. Habermas for a long time. Um, his doctoral dissertation, um, and he's he knows Dr. Habermas's argument probably better than any of us the, do. They're like two peas <laughs> in a pod. <laughs> they are two peas in a pod. Um, so this was the list that I that I took from his dissertation. Um, the first one, the first point that, high, and when he talks high percent, Dr. Habermas claims over ninety percent agreement um, on these points. Jesus died by crucifixion. Roman crucifixion. Uh, So that's something that's agreed upon. Uh, Number two, Jesus was buried, most likely in a private tomb. Um, Number three, the disciples' discouragement after the death and their lost hope following the events of the crucifixion, the death and burial, it felt like that was it, and they were all that they had put there, all the eggs they had put in the basket the last three years seemed to be gone. Um, the empty tomb. Um, and if I, I'm trying to remember right, maybe you can remind me or refresh my memory. Was the empty tomb the one point that maybe doesn't get 90% agreement on? Yeah, it, it gets something know. like, it, it's not maybe 90%, but there's still like something like 75%. I mean, in which... That's huge, and to get to get yeah. a handful of scholars to agree on most anything is remarkable. But to get seventy five percent, it shows it a strong case. Ninety percent, even more so. Yeah. So the empty tomb is another one of the items. Um, the number five would be the disciples' experience. Um, they did believe in the risen Jesus. Um, transformed lives. The, the disciples, and this goes back to J. Warner Wallace's, you know, the conviction, the switch from bias to conviction. They were willing to die for the belief in the truth that Jesus had risen from the dead. Um, and that's, that's significant. Um, lying men, what does Dr. Habermas say? Lying men rarely are willing to die. You know, they'll die for 
what was what was his he had a uh, line that he, he whipped out all the time oh yeah lying men like lying men are, are, are rarely die for something they know to be a lie <laughs> yes yes so i mean their relief because they they all were i think without exception uh, martyred for their faith and their willingness to proclaim the resurrection um, there was early proclamation of the resurrection. If you look in Acts 2, 24, you know, you have Peter's sermon, and Peter references the fact that God raised him up from the dead. And this follows Acts 1, in which the ascension of Jesus into heaven is recorded. Then the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples, and then Peter's out speaking to the people who are accusing you know, they're confused. They're confused because the disciples now have the gift to speak in other languages. Um, some accuse them of being drunk. And Peter offers a sermon that delineates what all happened. Um, the fact that, and this would be the eighth point that Dr. Shaw lists, it was proclaimed in Jerusalem. I mean, when you're on the streets of the city in which this all just happened weeks ago, a month and a half ago, there's plenty of people, if what Peter was saying was incorrect, that would have corrected him or been able to refute it right then and there. Um, number nine, the resurrection is central, like you had said in the intro to this question, to the gospel message. Um, the fact that we see Sunday became the gathering day for Christians, the day that they gathered to worship and be together, um, and then two conversions are points 11 and 12 that Dr. Shaw lists. The conversion of James, uh, brother of Jesus, who until an encounter with the risen Jesus was not a believer in who he said he was. And probably most famously, you know, we have Paul, who on the road to Damascus to hunt down those that were following Jesus, encountered what he believed to be was the risen Jesus and completely transformed his life from persecutor of the church to, you know, writer of a good majority of the New Testament, um, a man that suffered a great deal at the hands of others for the proclamation of the truth of Jesus Christ and the fact that he was risen. You know, I, th I think for me, the transformation of James is even more amazing than Paul's and the reason for that, if James was the brother of Jesus, <laughs> I love my sister and I know she loves me, but I can guarantee you she's not going to be calling me the Son of God anytime soon. <laughs> true. true, so, true. I mean, so to have a, a, a sibling, even though you know it may not be biological, so to speak, or, or maybe just half biological, a stepbrother, maybe what what you'd call, but even then, to, just to think that that he goes from someone who thinks Jesus has lost his mind to now proclaiming him as the Savior. That is, and, and plus the fact, too, that James was a very devout man in his in his Jewish faith and then now has this transformation. That, to me, is very remarkable. And then Paul, of yeah. course, you know, went from wanting to, to stone Christians and, and, and execute them to, to be a proclaimer of the very faith he tried to eliminate. That That is amazing, too. Yeah, isn't that incredible? Well, so, I so much to say, but those those minimal facts from it just boils it down to things that that are essential, and it's amazing we get so many to agree on them. Real quickly, we, I can't believe this hour has already passed. We're we're out of time, but I do want to mention one quick thing before we before we bring up the last question. Speaking of Ben Shaw, I, I actually read on he is he is uh, developing a new ministry called Core Apologetics. I encourage people to go check it out. They had a post recently that I found amazing. People may listen to us and think, "Well, why are you spending all this time on the historicity of the Bible? Why are you spend all this time on theology and all these deeper level issues?" Well, here's the reason: a latest the latest Barna study showed that less than one percent of all teenagers and children are going to hold a biblical worldview. Less than 1% of American teenagers and children are going to maintain a biblical worldview. That's why we've got to be in the Word, but that's why we also need to bolster our faith with work like what Dr. Johnson's doing, 
Dr. Shaw and many others. That's why we are here at Bellator Christi to tell you we have good reasons for believing that the Scripture is the Word of God and that we should believe in what it says. So with that, that's a, hopefully that's a good segue to our last question. How does the historicity of these events impact our belief in the divine inspiration of Scripture? Mm. Um, to keep it as concise as I can, it affirms it. Um, you very well clarified the fact that we really shouldn't be talking about proving it. It's God's Word. It doesn't need our little findings to prove any of it, but it affirms it. And God knew that we would need those little pieces of whatnot. So, you know, in summary, if the Bible is correct, if it's historically reliable in names, cultural practices, geography, governmental traditions, practices, things that we've seen in our discussion tonight, then it is most certainly reliable in terms of its primary message Mm. and the primary message the fact being we as sinners or we as humans are sinners and god spends the entire rest of scripture unfolding his plan to allow us to be restored to a right relationship with him have our sins forgiven because of the work that his son jesus did on the cross his finished work and then sealed by his resurrection. So we're able to be restored. The hope that's in that and the eternity that that promises. Well, that's a mic drop moment right there. <laughs> Very well said. Man, I can't, folks, I encourage you go back and re-listen to this podcast. Share it with some friends because there was some, Michelle shared some wonderful information tonight that I that I hope will encourage you, strengthen your faith. And if you know someone who may be having struggles with their faith, our prayer is that you'll share this information with them so that they may be strengthened as well. For Dr. Michelle Johnson, this is Dr. Brian Chilton saying God bless. Thank you for joining us tonight on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And we hope and pray that you have a wonderful evening and a wonderful Christmas season. Recording stopped. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. This program is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. If you enjoyed this podcast, then be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review. Also, tell a friend. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas.